0: So welcome everyone to the May Coronet Programs event. As you notice, we've changed it up a little bit. We're not at lunchtime and we're not at Maggiano's. There we go. So a very special thank you. You'll see behind us we have many things rolling behind my head. But a special thank you to our diamond sponsors, our platinum, gold, silver, end user sponsors, and our premium end user sponsors as well. We really appreciate your support. Uh, The chapter could not run without your support. Um, A couple quick announcements about some upcoming events. Um, We are going to be having on May 21st at Dirt will be the Speed Mentoring event, and that will be Mentors will speak for, about, uh, for rounds of 15 to 20 minutes with you about how they came about into their jobs and insightful information for all ages. Next we'll have our June 13th luncheon, and again we're going off campus or field tripping as I like to call it, and we're going to 625 Adams and the topic that month is going to be cannabis in real estate. So no one has done a program on pot, so we thought hey you know let's talk about marijuana and real estate. What else? It's Illinois, it's on the topic of the government, so let's talk. Uh, After that, uh, we're going to take a break in June and July on programs, but we'll be back in September. We'll be back at Maggiano's, and we'll be talking about disasters in real estate, what you didn't think of. And then also mark your calendars for the Coronet Classic Golf Outing, and that will be again at Cantini on September 19th. Always a good time, always a sellout. So once you see that post go up, get your ticket fast. And then also in November, on November 20th, we have the Coronet Real Awards again at the Art Institute. Fabulous event, fun time, dress to impress. So that takes care of our upcoming events. But last but not least, we really want to thank Motorola Mobility for allowing us to be here at their headquarters. I do apologize for us not being on the roof deck. Uh, we made the call early this morning that we thought it was going to rain. So sorry about that. Um, but it's fun to be here. So next I would like to introduce our panelists. So uh, we have three panelists as well as our moderator and our first one is Nick Lawrence. He is with Cohesion. He is the head of sales. He is uh, in charge of the sales organization, including domestic sales, product implementation, and customer success of predictive analytics. Uh, Most recently, Nick served as the vice president at uh, ESD, Environmental um, environmental System Design, and he was a practice leader of operations with their technology, engineering, and operations director for intelligent building groups. So welcome, Nick. Next, we have Paul Lorette. He is an associate director with Protivity. He is on their technology consulting security and privacy privacy practice. He uh, additionally was a uh, director of cybersecurity and privacy strategies for one of the world's largest enterprise software vendors. As well, he's a licensed attorney and has a master's degree in computer science. Welcome, Paul. Our third panelist is Tara Vanderloo. She is a senior vice president of customer experience with Sensi Labs out of Toronto. She focuses on helping customers and teams to evolve and execute faster. Tara has partnered with pharmaceutical and consumer health brands to oversee the creation of many industry firsts, including gaming and mobile apps. And she um, has held senior positions at other um, Healthcare agencies and startups supervising leading edge initiatives using iPads, virtual and augmented reality. <laughs> Welcome, Tara. And our moderator for the afternoon slash evening is Justinian Fortenberry. He is the Chief Information Security Officer for Grubhub Holdings. And in the beginning of the career, his thought process was run fast and break things for a few dot com companies. His love of security uh, led him to working with pharmaceutical companies, Microsoft, Bankrate.com, and his technology and security background helps him focus on creating a a risk-aware culture. Thank you, Justinian, for being here. So with that, I'm gonna turn it over to our moderator and our panel. To talk about predictive analytics and privacy laws and what do they know.
1: Thank you so much for that introduction. Thank you, everybody. Because uh, obviously, as the CISO of a food delivery company, I'm the right person to be a knowledge holder at this type of event. But rest assured, they gave me notes and questions. Um, so when we talk about predictive analytics, it covers all manners of SID. Um, you know, one of the first questions that comes up is in a predictive
2: analytic world, who owns the data? So that's a simple one for us as um, a company who is looking to empower real estate experiences, uh, enable um, better experiences for the tenants of buildings, put more tools into the hands of those who operate buildings, and give more effective insights to be- for better decision making at the asset management level. One of the first decisions we made, and it is guaranteed in our contract, is that we don't own the data. The data is owned by our customer. We are given a perpetual right to it. Um, There is certainly a discussion to be had at a certain point, but I think there's value to that data for everybody, but it's pretty clear that the person whose systems generate it is the owner of it, free and clear. Same.
3: Our customers own it. We have access to it. If for any reason our engagement is no longer relevant, then they can ask us to destroy their data, return it, and then destroy it so that we no longer have access. Um, we use a process which I think you're probably familiar with. We had, we're required to follow a certification or certificate of destruction. And it's a, a lengthy process that we have to follow to make sure that both sides are,
4: everything's in the clear. I think my answer to it is it depends who's asking. Right. The lawyer. The <laughs> depends. But, but, and, and the consultant, right? So <laughs> it, the answer will always be it depends. Um, but, but the reality is, is you know, so there's, there's a couple additional questions I would ask on top of it, right? So who owns the data? It depends on when. Are we subdividing certain aspects and attributes of it? You know, you guys have business models that are in the cloud. Um, so physical priority over that data, you technically have contractual arrangements that determine whether or not and what happens to those things and due to their service level agreements, are they sanitizing when you ask them to? Can they produce that they're they're doing these additional things? Um, and on top of it, you know, I was having a discussion actually out in the the reception before um, about So what happens, do you guys remember this company called Clear that operates in airports where you can go through kind of like the TSA prepa? Well, they filed for bankruptcy in 2009. And we were one judge's ruling away from all your biometric data being retinal scans and thumbprints from being sold. So there's another question about, you know, you talk about a lifetime guarantee from a company, it's the lifetime of the company. So if you go into chapter 11 and we start selling off assets and one of your assets is, you know, my 23andMe swab or my thumbprint—it's then it, it depends on who's asking, what venue we've chosen, and who we hired as counsel. So, I think that's a—it it, it is an interesting question about
1: selling, especially as you know some of the the regulations around selling and what constitutes selling are changing so much. You know, California's got this big consumer protection act that's going in uh, in place and seven months um that has changed it so uh, you know can this data be sold can this data be shared can this data you know does it provide value to anybody other than the person who signed the contract
2: one of the things that makes life a little easier for us is we are interacting with systems and buildings and those systems are generating this data the activity of people within the buildings are generating data, but to provide our solution in a meaningful way, we don't need to know exactly who an individual is. We're much more interested in where they are in a building. We're interested in patterns of occupancy that would have influence on the various systems in the building, particularly the mechanical system, because we're looking to make it more efficient. We're looking to bring autonomous function to it based on expectation of weather, uh, prevailing prediction, actual day of. We're looking to see... Um, Who we expect to be in the building, we are looking to put safeguards around being too quick to react to some of that data because we don't want the building itself to overreact um, relative to one person showing up for a very brief amount of time. But we are looking for a a, a more intelligent means because there's money to be saved there. We don't need to know exactly who someone is for that, um, but we do have some challenges to overcome, particularly in a multi- multi-tenant scenario where we have a public-private divide between that space that is public and is managed by the owner of the building versus the lease space that the tenant's occupying. So it's that those sorts of decisions are very simple. Um, we also are following uh, fairly established practices around many of those endpoint systems where if, if we're going to talk to an access control system, uh, that access control system knows who the individuals are within the, uh, within the building it only knows a limited amount about them. It knows essentially what their name is and where they're supposed to be. Um, but much beyond that, there's not a lot of personal danger to that data itself. Um, certainly that doesn't, doesn't diminish our task of safeguarding it, making sure that it is kept in a secure place and that um, whatever its life cycle within our system and within the systems where we maintain it is preserved. But it is a little simpler um, because we can do things with the stuff that is particularly sensitive to keep it away from the rest of it, um, isolate it and put it into repositories where an extra special amount of care can be exercised.
3: And we're the opposite. So we, our platform, we very much care about the individual data. So um, it's both the software that we sell to our customers and that we use internally which is intended to look at the behaviors of an organization and the people who work within it. So we collect information, and I'll just speak to our example internally. We have 800 employees in our Toronto location uh, with smaller teams in New York and Philadelphia. Um, And we track everything from where we are in the building, which floors we're on, what social spaces we're interacting in, what meeting rooms we're using for how long and what duration and what technology we're using in the meeting room. So we're making decisions. I mean, I've been in a management role uh, for a number of years. And the data that we collect helps drive my decisions in terms of where people are situated on our floors, what teams should be collaborating together in what spaces, um, and also to learn from you know d- different behaviors and patterns of coming and going, and um, how that relates to the data I'm collecting from a project level and an execution level. So for us, um, you know, when I enter the building on a Monday morning, it's, I'm time stamped. It knows what time I come in and when I leave and if I've gone down to our our cafe we call it it's on the main floor um, and we have screens everywhere so it'll show my pictures so if someone doesn't know who I am I'm like, oh, that's Tara so we've integrated the data collection with a very social component which I think allays some of the concerns about what are you doing with my data is it Big brother and so we, you know, we collect an aggregate anonymous, but we also
4: collect at an individual level. So, and I'll, I'll preface the answer to your question about can it be sold by saying, I've learned a lot about Terra Next Platform, and they do really cool stuff with data. Um, my objective is not to be a wet blanket who says, you know, no. Mine is to say to the introduction point of move fast and break things that can be an expensive rework if you already know these things are on the horizon. So what's the agile approach to it? We wanna be able to say, let's make these things happen. So to the question, again, the answer is going to be, we're gonna wait and see what happens with California. So for those of you who may not know, we had a big privacy regulation in the European Union that went live May 25th of last year. Spoiler alert, the data protection authorities have already told us as of the one-year anniversary if you thought the 40 million euro fine that they slapped on Google last month was something, you ain't seen nothing yet, right? They're like, we have the Netherlands hired 220 auditors and we gotta, we gotta make payroll somehow. Uh, so spoiler alert, Google and Facebook, you guys are probably gonna be the first ones to hear from us. Um, California followed suit then with something that was originally on the referendum called the the California Consumer Privacy Act, um, which is, there's a really interesting write-up on how it came to be on the referendum that involves, it sounds like the start of a bad joke. It's a CIA analyst, a real estate developer, and a finance guy (laughs) at a cocktail party all, all get together. But that was actually pulled off the referendum because most of Silicon Valley was trying to kill it, they couldn't get it to die, and now we have this bill that the California Attorney General's office isn't quite sure how they're going to provide guidance and enforce it, whereas the European Union had five years to ramp up to it. Can we sell the data? They're still determining things like, when we talk about consumers, does that include my employees? Um, initially the way the language was worded, you know, I worked with some various, some of the world's largest loyalty programs, the way that it was worded made it sound like loyalty programs are basically going to be outlawed in the 12th, you know, 12% of the U.S. population in the world's fifth largest economy is the state of California. People like Target and Starbucks, Walgreens and CVS would have to turn off their loyalty programs. So in their infinite wisdom in the halls of Sacramento, they decided to hear all bills privacy, including like 16 different amendments on April 23rd. So we do know that some of those answers are likely to change, but we probably won't find out until a little bit later this summer. But the key takeaway from all this in terms of planning and you know, if we're moving fast and still trying to break things is that these are things to keep on our radar. And if we know what we think those decisions we have to make are, we can plan accordingly
2: to be agile. Yeah, I think the one thing that I would add, um, we, we set out with the task of, of making all of these great solutions that are available in the commercial real estate space communicate with one another so that better things could happen as a result. I mean, There are fantastic technologies that do very specific things. Some might bring three or four different functions um, within the space and and bring value in and of themselves. Um, The the opportunity that we were looking to create was the ability to let all of those things communicate, Um, and in the absence of of some of the functionality that um, maybe they deliver in and of themselves, we would augment that with certain end-user functionality that we would bring. Obviously all of these things are creating data, and so back in my consulting engineering days, our definition was a smart building, was a building that was constituted of smart systems that communicated, created data, but an intelligent building was one where you took all of that data, you put it in one place and you did things with it. And so when you go back to all the buzzwords over the last several years of big data, IOT and so forth, these are the things that we're pursuing. So when you start to think about selling that data, Um, Naturally, what we revert to is the the premise that much of commercial real estate remains, um, and I would argue, particularly in North America and the United States in particular, reactive um, in terms of our thinking, our management of these spaces, um, allocation of labor, allocation of money. Um, And part of the promise that we're trying to bring to bear is to bring some data into the world that allows not just the management of, of assets where our solution maybe is deployed, but the industry itself to start acting in a more proactive fashion because we do have data upon which to fall to start to make some decisions about how is space utilized, um, what are the benefits of it, what are some of the decisions between ways that we would use it versus other options that we might have, and that is an opportunity where you know anonymous data can provide value. Where I think Paul's freaking me out is where I start to think about the fact that very smart people can take data that we're using anonymously and do other things with it, which only puts more of an onus on us to make sure we're good stewards. So, part of, I'm not trying to freak him out. You, you, it's, it's too late. <laughs>
1: so I'll, I'll go a bit off script just because I'm super curious. You had some great examples of, of where predictive analytics has helped and where you're doing. What are some other good examples of where predictive Predictive analytics provide material value and, and the data is very useful to the company. I've got a bunch. <laughs> Go for it. I'm timing you. you got three um, minutes. <laughs> this
3: is actually this is a good one. So we part of our platform is, is, I'll just call it project management because it's a simple way to describe it. So what we do is every project that we execute or any of our customers execute um, is managed whether it's tasks that are being done managed to timelines, milestones, and so on. And there's one component of it that's more of a sentiment meter. So let's say I'm try, I'm a company, I'm you know I'm going through a, a post-merger integration. I've got a number of tasks on my plate. Every week I'm asked, is this is this project is it green, which is good? Yellow, it's something's going off the rails. Red, it's bad, and blue, it's awesome. And so over the years, as we used our own software before we sold it in market, before we commercialized, and what we started to notice over time is people, one, would get lazy and everything would just be green because you didn't have to comment on it if it was green. And so over time, we would look at the data and we could see um, we would call it the BS meter. If like, certain pro- like projects were looking really healthy, it was actually a big indicator that there was a problem and that the team either didn't feel they could be honest uh, or was rushing and not uh, doing the things that they needed to do. And so we could look at the teams within the organization where that was occurring and make course corrections. So. For us, you know, in a growing company, it's very hard to have your eyeballs on everything. So um, when you're in an oversight, you can really quickly catch a glimpse of how the entire team is feeling, because if it's on time and on budget, it's great for us, and I can get the prediction in advance and get early risk warnings. So that's a, one of the ways we use it from a financial um, standpoint. Um, The other example that's more, I guess, um, fun, (laughs) Um, is how, like, internally, so we have um, a corporate social responsibility app, and so what that is, is it allows, we get points for our successful projects, and we can use those points to purchase goats, mosquito nets, you know, in different countries in need. And for us, if, as a manager, I can look and see, because if, if someone's on my team, is, their projects are going well, they get more points. So I'll get a notification that says, hey, Tara, um, so-and-so just purchased a goat. And I'm like, oh, wow, that means they must have been X profitability, and it's a quick win for me to see that. So um, it's all of that data comes together to form a really good picture of success or lack thereof.
2: Amazing. Any any other? That, that's such a more thing. fun example. When you bring a goat into it, um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel so granular. I mean, th- there's two things. I, I think when we take predictive analytics and we apply it in a useful fashion, certainly mechanical heating and cooling within a, a commercial building um, is, is an easy example, and where we start to think about overlaying not just systemic reaction and st- systemic inputs of data, but also human. Um, And we start to look at that that day in Chicago, rare day especially this spring, but where we know that the weather report says it's gonna be 50, the building is aware of that. We then look at what the visitor management solution is proposing is gonna be the introduction of an outside transient population of those visitors invited by hosts within the tenant organizations. We then look at a pattern of occupancy of the tenants themselves, based on looking at the access control system, Um, And then we look at perhaps what other events might be happening um, that the landlord has scheduled. And we take all of those factors, we look at what typically this thing would be doing on a day um, of of that time of the year And we start to say, well, let's let the mechanical heating and cooling system do its job in a smarter fashion, but then adjust it based upon what the visitor management solution is actually showing through the course of the day, and try and fine-tune especially a room such as this, where we might be expecting 250 people in it, but only 175 showed up, and let the system react to that because of the different source inputs. Um, I think the other great example is fault detection and diagnostics, where we start to get away from the uh, humans being the only people who are creating service tickets, or maybe even a human who's doing a walking tour looking for light bulbs that are burned out, and let devices start to create uh, their own service tickets, call for attention when they themselves, because of the, their typical function defined uh, within the system that is being monitored on a constant basis analytically, starts to show that they are, they are violating the rules that govern their happy behavior. And even if the first step in an evolutionary process is dispatching someone, the minute that we detect some anomaly, we might not even know what it is yet, but we're sending someone to check it out. And that way, hopefully, we're preventing further damage upstream or downstream. We might be preventing greater utility consumption during that time before it actually gets bad enough that someone does go and check out the situation. We might be also obviating physical discomfort of people who might be in an affected area. Um, If we get really clever, we can start to look at that work stream around it. We can start to apply machine learning and AI. So we say we start to diagnose what that problem might be. We can then have the humans who and go and fix it, help reinforce what the actual issue was so the next time the thing is smarter and gives a better diagnosis and perhaps gives us the confidence to allow the system to start to identify perhaps what the broken pieces are, order those pieces, schedule the service request around the arrival of those pieces based on interface with ERP solutions. So there's a lot of cool things that we can do. It relies on a lot of good programming, it relies on good systems and good integration, but we start to allow the people within the building to have a better, better experience within the building, hopefully. We allow the engineering staff to go to a proactive uh, rather than a reactive stance is a better use of their time and hopefully you know, a, a better use of, of their, the cost of their labor within the space. And finally, um, hopefully we, we might even start to have some influence in other industries who are associated, like insurance, who might be not facing a significant claim uh, because something is broken and, and the owner is going to them looking for remuneration for whatever that might be. So my, my fantasy world made reality.
1: Those are great examples. Thank you very much for that. If, you know, my wife says that as a CISO, my job is to. I'm paid to be pessimistic and talk about my feelings, so.
2: Safe sandwich.
1: I start to take all those data points that you brought up, and and I, I I wonder like, how do we know we're not going too far? So you know, one anecdote I have is one time drinking with somebody who worked for a company that may or may not rhyme with Schmelly vision uh, (laughs) said, uh, you know, they were bringing up their frustrations of, you know, the the space planning not being done early enough and the team over outgrew. And it was um, the really what it came up to was a really bad ratio for bathrooms. So one weekend he put sensors on the, the doors, the stall doors, so that they could map when the bathrooms are in use to try to get the company to, ch- to change it. And I, of course, think about how far can you go and can you go too far? Like, once I know if the stall's in use, what if I start measuring, hey, the stall's in use and somebody's on Wi-Fi. They're probably going to be there for a while. Oh, stall's in use, they're probably on Wi-Fi. Oh, and it's Justinian. Oh, the stall's in use, He's on Wi-Fi, it's Justinian, he's in the bathroom, and he's been there for four hours. Oh, well, now we can use his desk. Oh, Should we talk to him about his diet? <laughs> you know, And can I predict it even farther? Oh, you spend four hours every day in the bathroom. Maybe you're not, I don't need to plan for your bonus. Like, how far is too far, and how are we protecting people and, and the privacy of
4: those that are part of this data? So if you're, gonna, if you're gonna bring security into it, it goes back to fun use cases for people like you and me. Um, <laughs> Nothing as fun as a goat, although the craziest, and I still can't figure out if it's just anomalous data set or what, the craziest proof of concept I ever saw somebody show me was a very popular ride-sharing service in the San Francisco area with three districts within a three-hour window of first pitch at at and Park could predict whether or not the Giants would win to a 78% degree of accuracy. Based on pickups from this ride service three hours before first pitch. Not as fun as a goat. But when we talk about, you know, what do we do with predictive analytics in the security space? And some of the questions, you know, that are to your point about being pessimistic, um, user and entity behavioral analytics, I always thought was, you know, this is the future of my space, which is the idea of saying, um, You know, we have two threats that we're really looking at. There's threats that come insider threat, which is very difficult to challenge, which is somebody that already has access to something or was a former employee or a contractor. It's very difficult to sniff these people out because their access is legitimate. It's normally one of the bellwethers that we use to figure out, so is this actually what's going on? In a lot of circumstances, the idea of seeing what is anomalous behavior for that person I could have a security operations center that's staffed 24-7 and I could put three analysts on it that would never be able to figure out, to Nick's point before, when you take big data and ingest all of this digital exhaust from everything that happens in my organization, they can start predicting with an 83% you know, degree of success whether or not Barry Zito or whoever's gonna win that day. Um, you will find things that because of the way the mouse is moving, the cadence of the keystrokes, the time of day, the geolocation, space in terms of where these people are coming and how it fits with their behavioral as to whether or not I need to escalate, is this an active attack? Is something going on here? And then from a long list of, you know, I did a lot of work with DOD and three-letter agencies talking about things that are coming in. We have so many data points that we're trying to attract in terms of customs and border protection, what shipping containers are coming out, what's going on with airline travel, and things like that. We can find trends inside all that that give you high-value security decisions. But to your point, the question about, you know, so how far is too far? That's this tension that keeps going back and forth between... So uh, this initial question about, is, is it a US citizen first? There was a story I read last week that was talking about you know, separations of families at the border, this idea of we're ta- being able to take swabs and you know, reunite families where children have been separated. And you know, I was at a privacy conference, and somebody said, uh, well, you, know, you can't do that because of protections under HIPAA. And I was, my response was, these are not US citizens. If you want to do it, you can do it, but that's part of the tension you have to start asking about where do these fit? It's a very nuanced question with lots of different things to consider. There's always a way. It's just a question how you navigate it.
3: And I think you have to be very cognizant of, like in an organization like ours or any of our customer organizations, how far you push it, because there's so much. There's ad, there, the people are at risk if you push the envelope on the kind of data you collect. Like we would never put sensors in bathroom stalls. Never. We decided we will never track our all our staff have phones. We will not track their location. It's just not something we'll do. So many companies do. We just thought no. Like we need the trust to us is more important than the data we could, would collect from it. And this isn't like uh, a Sensei Labs example, but uh, there's a great example from UPS, and this is going back a few years, but they implemented um, something they they called Project Orion and what it was with all the drivers, and they were trying to get a sense of how many accidents they were having and the impact on getting your Amazon delivery to you on time and the big Amazon package fan. Um, but what they did is they gave their employees a choice. They said, okay, you can use your GPS to guide every move, like get in your truck, follow it, never waver. The next group said they said, use both, you know, use your judgment, use your GPS, because we are they were routing them. And then the third group, they just didn't have anything at all. So what they found was when the middle group where the driver used their intelligence coupled with the data was the most successful group with the fewest amount of accidents and the fewest incidents. And what they also learned is that a UPS truck makes very few left turns. And if you ever follow one, I'm obsessive when I hear these things. I'm like, is this true? So you'll notice that they actually very rarely make a left turn. They will route them to make right turns because it's faster, it's less chance of injury or accident. And so to me, that like when you push too far and say you have to do this because I want this data, that's, you know, you could they could have upset half their driving staff who may would have gone to work for FedEx where they didn't have to. So I feel like there's a human element that is so important to any data discussion about how far
2: you go. I totally want to put sensors in the bathrooms, but I want to do it for something different. Um, I-, I want sensors in the bathroom because I want to know when we're out of soap. I want to know to send uh, maintenance people there at the end of the day because it was used. I want to know th- because we might need to send people there during the day because of the amount of use that it's gotten. So that, I-, I would like that. I certainly don't want to know who it is. I don't particularly want to know that you were in there for four hours. Um, But, you know, you also get this sort of collateral benefit. Um, Mo and I out there were at a conference last week where um, a company was telling a story about the fact that everything is on their network now, including their mouse traps. Anyone else at Disrupt CRE last week? And what they learned, there, there was a joke made about, you know, what is your mouse per month, your MPM? Well, what one company found was that their MPM in most of their buildings was two or three. But in one building, it was around 19. And what they learned from that data was they had a foundation issue in that building. And the mice were coming through the crack. So you never know where you're gonna get something useful. And that allowed them to address that in a, uh, in a more timely fashion because of the MPM. Full cool story. But they also had to do an extensive and rigorous security screening of those connected mouse traps. As with every other device that they allowed to connect to their network.
3: I didn't know mouse traps were connected. That's really
2: cool fire actually. extinguishers, all kinds of stuff these days. And it's it's preventing people from doing rote tasks of going and looking at them because they can they can speak for themselves. They don't need a Lorax anymore. Great. I, I think uh, kind
1: of shifting back a little bit to the privacy laws around predictive analytics. Um, can anybody share anything about, you know, is it the for For employees, you've got some of these you know uh, laws around like the right to solitude and the right to not be um, watched. Are there different rules, different laws between private building areas, public building areas, toilet stalls?
4: Sorry to keep taking it back to the toilet i <laughs> uh, over. It's over yeah, yes, yeah, so there are. I mean I, the key takeaway before I mention any of this, and you can get into a little bit about what the topography of these look like, is that I think the notion you should take away from this before I say anything is privacy is here to stay. right? So this is a function that needs to be part of your legal and risk for any organization that's looking to move forward. Um, I. I think it will, you may have a little bit of time to start planning for it, um, you know, we all pretty much understand now that cybersecurity is part of our due diligence, which interestingly enough, we don't have a cyber negligence standard either through case law or through a regulation unless we're talking about some financial services. So like the New York Department of Financial Services has a law that requires a bunch of things. South Carolina's following suit for that. We're just sort of putting common sense regulations in place for people that are in the financial services industry. You will find that privacy is going to move faster than the other security considerations we have things like PCI we have HIPAA we have things that you hear about you know whether or not PCI credit card data HIPAA you know, health information um, what changed with the European Union's general data protection regulation or GDPR was this notion of it applies extraterritorially and you know uh, talked about this a little bit before but you know when Edward Snowden dropped all these documents, what the EU learned from that was is that they were giving US multinationals a pass that said, we swear we'll take care of this data and we'll protect it under your safe harbor rules. And when they saw these you know, US telecoms that were giving wholesale core trunk access to the NSA, they said, you're not even pretending, right? So we're gonna put something with some teeth in it. And that's why I predict, you know, as we start getting into the summer months this year, many vacations will be ruined for legal departments at many US corporations that are hearing, hey, we're gonna have to cut a check that has this many commas in it, because GDPR can take up to 4% of your net global turnover, right? Um, That's because the EU treats privacy as a fundamental human right. State of California was the right place to go ahead and say, we're going to go ahead and put a privacy law because in 72, they amended the Constitution to say that it's a fundamental right for Californians. But most of us in general, you don't have a right to privacy in the United States. Uh, That's changing, right? So we have 18 states that in 2019 all considered different privacy regulations a lot of them are grandstanding if you had a governor that was planning on an exploratory committee to possibly run for president in 2020 you had a privacy bill come out in your state which privacy is kind of cool in a way, right, like it's, it's a big thing that shows up with millennials now, I, I, I get this, it, you know, results vary depending on the culture of the organization that you're with and who you're talking to, but this is something we have to start planning for because it quasi fills the space that also cohabitates a little bit with security. Um, I guess the answer to that is, is so in terms of what we're going to do, we're going to have to be agile. Uh, everybody has sort of gone back, gone into committee with most of their bills and said, let's see what California does. Washington State had something that was essentially GDPR light, uh, that failed to make it out of committee by April 28th, so it passed in the Senate, it failed in the House. Everybody who tells you, hey, we're gonna have a federal privacy reg, come catch me afterwards, I'll tell you why it's not gonna happen. So the idea of federal preemption that's gonna go ahead and cover all this stuff, I'm, I'm betting heavily, I'm shorting that notion. So. Um, I think we're gonna wait and see, but start making your plans for it now. What's challenging for those of us in the IT space is that privacy was always something that was, you know, cyber was sort of the sexy venue to be in when it comes from the IT space. Privacy was always sort of something that was mostly policy and mostly legal drove. Now, the expectations of everyone with a phone and everyone in the business you know in, in the business environment understands what tech can do because of cool things you guys are building and saying we should have that expectation to uphold this notion that I should have a right to say, don't sell that,
2: don't share that, and so on So plan accordingly. that's funny about five years ago, we started to become concerned in the consulting engineering space around technology. Um, that everyone started wearing Fitbits and you had all these corporate Wi-Fi networks and the concern was that, you know, some corporation for whatever reason, might find itself being able to communicate with a Fitbit and and grab HIPAA-protected information from individuals within the organization. I I actually think probably a a more direct use case is now we're seeing all this sit-stand furniture with applications around them that are telling people when to stand up and work in a standing position. Um, What happens if people don't do it? What if companies start to look at the health of individuals? Uh, and whether or not they were sitting standing when their desk told them to. And, and if they refuse, should they pay more for their health care? Same way that you might want to have some sort of punitive tax on smokers. Um, interesting concept. and I, So that's one concept. The other is um, you asked about the public private divide. That's meaningful to us because location is a major source of data. It is a very useful source of data. Um, Couple different flavors of location-based services. There's blue dot navigation, so that's when you look at your phone and Google tells you how to get from where you are to where you want to be. But the other side is where are people uh, within a space? And that is particularly interesting information across a whole lot of folks in this room, including us, because we want to know where you are so we can make the building do things for you. In a multi-tenant building, um, you have a public-private divide, and that is a physical barrier, that is a logical barrier, and it's a financial barrier. Um, to collect location data, you need collection means. And there's a lot of different ways to do it. That sit stand desk can let you know, be a source of data for who, where somebody is. The wifi uh, connecting to your, your smartphone is another source. Um, sensors now embedded in light fixtures or another so making sense of all of that and making sure that it's viable that you can use it for your purposes whatever those might be um, comes with a cost and so if I'm a landlord and I want to be tuning my mechanical system based on where people are in the building appropriately if I can't get sensors into the, the private space for whatever those reasons are because I don't want to pay for them my tenant doesn't want to pay for them. Then how do I how do I tune so that we all benefit? Because typically that's a cost that's going to be passed through to the tenant. Might might be a decision based on the lease, but there's there's a benefit to that data. So we all want it. So if the tenant has certain co- data collection points in their space, how are they going to pass that to the landlord in a way that their systems can ingest? That's a challenge. Uh, who's going to actually pay for it? And I mean to make sure that we have an integration point that works. And then lastly if I'm a landlord and I'm willing to embrace maybe a paradigm shift where I'm going to push smart little beacons in that are no longer just a dumb thing but is actually got some sort of an imager to it, might have an algorithm, might be a powered device, and I'm pushing that into my tenant space, I might be providing that location-based service as, a, as a, an amenity to my tenant. Now, it's reactive still, but I can then tell them six months from now, that nice cafe that you built gets used maybe 5% of the work week. You might want to start thinking about repurposing that to something more useful. You also are maxed out on your collaboration spaces, but nobody's using your monster space, so that might be something you convert down to smaller size. So everyone, everyone's looking for that data, but how do we deliver it? How do we collect it? How do we collect it in... A standardized fashion that everyone can use and who's actually footing the bill for it relative to the value they get is, is still a major question for all of us to answer.
1: You, you brought up um, you know, the Fitbit example and uh, as a person who's a sit-stand desk, I hate every time my Apple Watch tells me to stand up because my Apple Watch needs to shut the hell up. Um, What rights does an employee, a mouse, anybody have to not participate in these programs of this data collection?
3: Um, Like are you talking specifically about biometrics or just in general? Okay, because we don't do any fit and like we all have Apple watches but we don't track data for health or anything else. for us, it's part like it's part of our agreements, our contracts when we hire new employees that we're very open about the data we collect, and it's all transparent. So there's nothing going on behind the scenes that um, would be nefarious in any way. So we're really open about it. And there isn't an opt-out. It's part of our organization. All of our customers who purchase our software, it's part of their organization. And they're also equally as transparent. Um, So for us, yeah, there is is no, it's not optional. It's just part of the software.
4: Yeah, I don't know that there's a hard and fast answer to that. I think the right approach is to Tara's sort of approach is saying this should be a recruiting and retainment, uh, retaining differentiator. Uh, you know, I we, we were talking earlier about how people, you know, they currently enjoy the environment. They love the fact that they're able to track people down on an eight-floor space and work more collaboratively and get all these other notions out of it. Um, Whereas, you know, I think some people have heard the story about there's a Wisconsin company that puts chips in their their workers, if that becomes something where it's, you know, we're tracking you and it's draconian, and that should be a differentiator. I think, you know, the the desire to retain this space is a fantastic example. You know, I I think the merchandise mart itself has become a hotspot for recruiting people to work in a a place they want to go to every day. Same thing with sort of like over by Fulton Market. It should be something where people want to come because the search for for in-demand talent is so tight right now that these are things that are opportunities, not so much barriers.
3: I, I couldn't agree more. And, and it, like hiring is our single greatest challenge, and you know we say we we accept less people than Harvard from an applicant to hire um, ratio and keeping them is so important. And we, we believe that the software we develop has to demonstrate extreme value for it to be used. So we have a, a you know a safe to try environment, so we've often tried experiments of add-ons to our software and they failed miserably, so we killed them. If our 800 people hate it, no one out there is gonna buy it. So we test on ourselves first. But just to, you know, I, I was thinking about one of the particular applications of that was seating maps. I mean, that's pretty common. Everyone has them. Uh, and so I can find someone, you know, who I need to, for a signature or something on any floor by just searching their name, and it's like, oh, um, you know, Nick's on the eighth floor in X room, and I can go and find them. If someone's traveling, it's there's like a little airplane on their desk, or if someone's new, I was talking about this example earlier, and all new staff get a box of cookies, and they're like, oh, it's like come and meet them and grab a cookie. Like it, Those are the fun examples that make the real reasons we want that data work, because we're marrying them together, And I think that, you know, as an organization, and I know I'm speaking about ours in particular, but I mean, we have companies using our software in every industry and ones where everyone's wearing a three-piece suit every day. And our people show up in jeans and T-shirts and running shoes, you know? So I think that from a data perspective, it's... It's the, it's the how and it's the what that makes people comfortable with it and wanting to participate and not feeling like, ooh, like that's making me feel
2: uncomfortable. There's, um, there's definitely a coercive aspect to our solution. Um, we offer a visitor management uh, solution as part of our. Um, Part of our offering, we have embedded a mobile credential into the mobile app uh, interface. We offer both web and mobile, um, and organizations can elect to let their employees download a mobile credential that lets their cell phone act as their key card for base building doors. If the landlord chooses to extend access control to a tenant space, that means they can get all the way into their space using their smartphone doing it. by doing that, that has opened us up to tenant organizations um, subjecting us to a greater level of scrutiny. So all this, when, you, when you suddenly touch access control, um, you are drawing the, uh, the scrutiny of risk and compliance, of physical security, IT, so all those organizations have to be aware of the full breadth of our solution. Um, the flip side of that is the coercive aspect of it is if a building in a lease um, has certain stipulations that tenants have to use the systems that they provide um, as part of their their operation on a daily basis in the building, they have to use them. So we do get adoption throughout tenant organizations of our platform because if they want to register users into the building in the access control system, they do it through our interface. So no matter what, there's going to be a subset of people who will use our system, probably on a daily basis. Our task is to provide that great functionality that gets everybody to use it. And so if we can do things that make your experience in the building self-service and provide function to you that is useful, um, a simple example is a bike room. We are a big biking city, bike rooms are becoming more and more prevalent. Um, We automate the workflow of an employee in a building reserving their space in the bike room typically in the past you would have to go to the property management office you would sign a waiver they'd have to do something with that waiver file it scan it file it electronically someone would then put that person uh, give them access through the access control system to the card reader for the bike room and then if there was a payment they would have to figure out is it a check that is written on an annual basis We actually can make that about a 15 second process because you can complete and sign and execute your waivers on your phone. The minute you hit submit, you are automatically granted access through the key card reader. And we have integrated a payment gateway which was a Weasley way to avoid having to be PCI compliant. We use the same one that Uber uses. So we let them store the credit card information, but the employee puts that in on their their own. It goes through our interface, but it's not stored in our system. So that's a nice out for us, and that, that is something that we don't want to manage. We're more than happy to let them manage it. But it gives flexibility, and whether they're renting a parking space in the garage, a conference space on behalf of their company, or their space in the bike room on a monthly basis, they have the control to do that in their own hands. And so that's that frictionless aspect that starts to bring in some of the self-service and some of the easy integration capabilities that people are starting to expect because they get it at home with Nest and those types of solutions that are very easy to set up, instantly integrate with other solutions in the house, whether it's Alexa, whether it's another Nest product, that sort of thing. And that's where if we can provide compelling, functional content to them through our app, as well as the things that they are mandated to do simply by virtue of their tenancy in the building, that's where we get some success. Wonderful, thank you so much for answering my questions. I think we want to open it up
1: for Q&A.
4: Yeah, thank you all very much for joining us. This is uh, incredibly exciting about the opportunities ahead of us with all this technology. And it's kind of frightening, like an episode of Black Mirror so let's, let's see what our audience has to, to ask you guys, anybody who's first, oh here we go
1: thank you, it was a great presentation and I like the fact that you all appear to be able to provide all data, all analyses and everything to everyone, that's what I heard, so getting back to the basics of marketing which are the four P's, product Placement, uh, promotion, and price. So, what is your real product? Who is your real customer? How do they pay for it? And how do you promote it? So, if you could each give us a little more clarity on what you actually all do, that would be great.
2: Our first product is called Cohesion Core and the core is Kitchy. it stands for commercial real estate, and it is geared towards the multi-tenant building space. It is being followed very quickly by Cohesion Office, which is geared towards the owner-occupied space, subsequent products to follow, very appealing targets, higher education campuses, hospitality, residential, you name it, I got a product for you. Um, so that's the product. It is. It lives in Microsoft's Azure cloud, it has a comprehensive, um, group of verbiage around it that I'd be happy to spiel at, at hours. But, um, my, my primary customer for that first product is the owner and manager of a portfolio of multi-tenant buildings um, who is looking for a better experience for their tenants, looking for an easier operation experience for their staff in the building, and looking to provide actionable insights for the asset managers responsible for that, that suite of property. Uh, let's see, where do we go next? What's our next P? Price? Price? I have three cost components at this point. I have to implement it. I have to customize our software operate our offering for your building. Each one is a delicate snowflake like our children. So we have to understand your building to a certain extent. We provide as much modular and flexible customization to that product as possible to try and make it an easier job for both of us. We don't want to do software uh, custom development for your building, but we do want to reflect some of the idiosyncrasies of age, of disparate systems from building to building across the portfolio. We do want to normalize the data between those, so we have a task there. but. That's empowered by the smart people, fortunately, we have working for us. So we charge you an implementation cost up front. It's based on gross square footage of the building because we are managing the entire asset, not just the RSF, the rentable square footage. Our second cost is a SAS subscription fee, for an agreed period of time, we bill you, again, on gross square footage on an annual basis, but we invoice you monthly because we do have people to feed in the uh, household. Um, and then the last part is that mobile credential part. We are a relatively young company. We don't yet have a firm enough grasp about how quickly people are going to go through these little bits of code that go onto your smartphone. Um, if it's my daughter's, I know that they go through those fairly quickly. So we pass that along in exactly the same way that landlords will charge you for Your plastic HID key card, and we charge you essentially cost for those. So, those are your three cost components. The task before us is that there are those who will not want to use the full suite of functionality that we offer, and that becomes somewhat of a custom conversation, at least until we get a little more mature. What's my last piece, sir? Promote events like this, great people who are willing to listen to me talk. Um, Realcom, Ivycon um, has been a great promoter of our company. They've recognized um, our engineering heritage that we brought into the product and the scale at which we are trying to absorb the totality of a piece of real estate and the functionality we provide, our recognition that we are bringing together data not just from endpoint systems, but from people as well, so that we do get better engagement, we get better experience, less friction between people and their relationship with the building. Um, we're pretty young, so we're still working on that part, but we've got a great marketing young lady who's doing much for us, and um, we, are, we are optimistic for the future. Go next.
3: Yeah, we have a similar cost model. We don't like doing custom dev, either. Um, so our Sensei Labs is the company. Sensei OS is the solution. We have two products, both are SaaS cloud-based offerings also hosted in Azure's uh, environment. We just came off of Amazon Web Services last month as part of an overall partnership with Microsoft. Our software is intended to help organizations orchestrate big, complex projects at scale. So that's one product, that's Conductor. So if you can imagine, if you can imagine a way more awesome version of Microsoft Project without a crummy Gantt chart, much easier to use, with the intuition of things like sentiment tracking, <clears throat> risk and risks uh, management and interdependencies, and just a way to bring um, teams together across disparate geographies to ultimately help us move faster. <clears throat> the second uh, product is Catalyst. So Catalyst is some of the examples I gave you about the goats and uh, <laughs> the cookies <laughs> is much more of our employee engagement platform. So the customer who purchases that is really interested in, yes, orchestrating work and being profitable and using that suite of tools, but also creating an awesome environment and giving their, uh, their teams the tools they need to actually have a little bit more fun when they come to work using technology because it can be kind of overwhelming right like you were saying your company is kind of a free-for-all and so everyone's jumping in between all these apps and there's proof that when we do that we lose IQ points and it's a brilliant article, article about jumping in between like Slack and then you're over in Microsoft Project and then you're jumping into Asana and then Jira and so anyway, uh, so that's our product. Uh, our cost model is uh, we have a fee for setting up. We have a per user per month subscription costs. We have professional services. Some of our, particularly on the engagement side, we help them with their communication planning and how they're going to execute our platform within their organizations. It's fun because we actually get to do some cool stuff and get people excited. So it's like it's way more creative than just software. And I like that. So so that's really good um, and how do we promote ourselves so um Honestly, like we don't do a lot of marketing and, and that's the truth. it's a lot of word of mouth and we have some we have global business. We also have channel partners. One of them uh, is here in Chicago is AT Carney. it's a consultancy firm. I don't know if you've heard of them. Uh, they're a channel partner who is uh, using our platform with customers all over the world. It's a great way to have introductions, it's a brilliant model. So that's I think I covered the piece. No, oh
1: Big customers,
3: are they big yes, they are. Great. We have some of the biggest brands in the world, Fortune 5, predominantly. We only have two customers in Canada where our headquarters are, two, an engineering firm and a not-for-profit called We, and every and then stateside, uh, Europe, Asia-Pac, and a few in
4: Australia New Zealand, I think. So due to the non-novel nature of being a consultant, I'll just say a couple things to this. Um, As you start thinking about engaging really interesting partners and products and technologies, eventually as you go down this path, there comes a question about the security privacy strategy of it that comes from places like legal, IT, risk, potentially outside counsel, hopefully not outside counsel for someone else. Um, As you go down that path, um, we're a bridge. Uh, We, at least in terms of what my individual product is and germane to this discussion is the idea of saying we're in the space with smart people who have been there, done that, got the t-shirt. I can have the understanding with your C-suite that talks about what those really important concerns are but then we also have the ability to sit down with your enterprise architects, talk about. So when we talked about how do we plan proactively to be agile, so we don't have to go do rework or answer, you know, complaints that come in, or worse yet, lawsuits, those sorts of things. Um, how do we have that intelligent discussion, and we can take it soup to nuts all the way into remediation, future enterprise architecture, and doing the integration piece as well. Yeah, it's standard consulting model. There's nothing and to know. Are main customers?
1: Are they the tenants? Are they
4: landlords? Are they both? Uh We're everybody. I mean, we literally do a gigantic percentage of the Fortune 1000, you know, in terms of what we're doing in the real estate and and, and, and those arenas. Um, standard folks that use it. We're actually sort of a, a, a phoenix from Arthur Anderson. So, started primarily in the internal audit space after 2002, 80 partners from the IA, Portion came in, and now we've expanded into these other areas of technology consulting, robotic process automation, advisory, and so on.
0: So I would like to thank our panelists and thank our moderator. This has been very interesting. I'm sure our moderator and our panelists would be happy to answer some more questions one-on-one. So I am Diana Pozzoni, and on behalf of my co-chairs, Jonathan Seatler and Patrick Hankel, thank you for being here for our first After Hours Off Campus Coronet Programs event. And thank you to our panelists and our moderators.